morning. My name is David Dittenberg. Uh, I teach civil engineering at Cedarville, um, and I'm a member of our Southside House Church here at New Community. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to be able to, to share with you this morning uh, as we continue our walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're going to be taking a look uh, at uh, Matthew 5, 5, a sermon that I'm calling here, A Better Walk. Um, but before we get into that entirely, I want to introduce you to a couple of scenes uh, that are, that are going to help illustrate the point here. So the first scene is uh, taking a look at Abram. Uh, Abram obeyed God's call. He picked up his entire household. He traveled a great distance to arrive at the land that he had been promised by God. After a stint in Egypt to avoid a famine, uh, he returns to the land with an even larger household and greater possessions than he had before. His nephew, Lot, traveled with him, but was also so wealthy that they found that the land could not support them living close together. So Abraham offers to Lot that he'll let Lot pick a region of the land for himself, and then Abram will accept whatever region Lot does not choose. Lot looks out at the land, and he selects the best of it for himself. Second scene. Take a look at Moses. So Moses was miraculously saved from death as a baby. He was raised as a prince of Egypt. He was exiled for years, during which he built a house and a family. Uh, and then he responded to God's fiery call by returning to Egypt to lead his people out of subjugation. Moses has performed many miracles on God's behalf. He's spoken with God directly. He served as God's clearly appointed leader of the nation of Israel. Miriam and Aaron, who are Moses' siblings, see fault in the non-Israelite family that Moses had built while he was exiled, and they confront him. They feel that they both deserve to have a greater standing as leaders of Israel due to their lack of his flaws. Third scene. Take a look at David. David is known since his youth that he was anointed to be the next king of Israel. And he has watched the current king, Saul, make poor decisions and lead the people away from the Lord. David has been a faithful servant to Saul despite this, but Saul still sees David's existence as a threat to his power, and he tries to kill David on multiple occasions. This leads David to flee into the wilderness with his followers to escape. On two separate occasions, once in a cave and once while the king is sleeping, David providentially finds himself in a position to remove the jealous king from power at moments of vulnerability. And one last scene, taking a look at Paul. The Apostle Paul has a difficult relationship with the church in Corinth. In a letter, he confronted them to try to help them overcome some of their sins, their misunderstandings, and their divisions. Paul actually sends Timothy uh, to check in on the church, and Timothy finds that the church didn't respond well, and it's on the verge of fracturing. Paul hears this, uh, puts aside everything, and, and hurries to Corinth to try to help the church in person. What follows is, in Paul's own words, a painful visit, during which Paul suffers affliction and anguish because of the words and actions directed toward him by some members of the church. Four different scenes, four different faithful followers of God that find themselves in unfair situations. We're going to come back to those scenes in just a moment, 
But for now, let's reflect on where we're at with today's passage, where we'll be looking at Matthew 5, 5. Matthew 5 uh, is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the, the main series we're going to have for 2024 here at New Community. Jesus' main focus in the chapters that make up the Sermon on the Mount is on entering the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom that Jesus is encouraging his followers toward is life itself, and the opportunity to be a part of it is both immediate, uh, what we would consider to be the now aspect of the kingdom, and not yet, what we'd consider to be the, the future aspect uh, for the believer. What this means is that we can both experience our lives to the fullest now by following the example Jesus provides for us, and also we will one day experience the finality of the arrival of God's kingdom when Christ returns again. As we reflect on the Sermon on the Mount, then, we should remember that, as a Christian, our allegiance is to a different kingdom than the world around us, and that living in submission to that kingdom is the source of all good that we may hope to experience. It's important that we recognize that Jesus is not establishing a new system of laws with this sermon. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount in a particular way, it might feel like all you're getting is a bunch of new rules. That's not what he's doing. He's instead describing the life that's made available to his followers when they're able to enter into his kingdom through his sacrifice. This sermon, then, is a message for all people, but it's one that is specifically addressed to followers of Christ. And it's one that we should hear, respond to, and obey out of our love for our King of Kings. Jesus begins the sermon with the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes are what we've been discussing for a few weeks now as we've looked at the beginning of Matthew 5, but I wanted to go ahead and start with just a few reminders uh, about uh, what, how we should view these Beatitudes as a whole. Number one, the Beatitudes are for all Christians. These Beatitudes are intended to apply to us today just as much as they did to the disciples uh, that heard Jesus originally share this message. Number two, the, all, all Christians are to be like all of the Beatitudes. That is the intent with, with how Jesus has communicated these. This isn't a, like, pick and choose uh, the ones that you feel like are most applicable to you. This isn't necessarily like spiritual giftings where, where some possess some and others possess others. Um, the intent here of the Beatitudes is that this is a, a way of life that uh, should apply to all believers, and that includes all of the Beatitudes. Number three, each beatitude is dependent on the others. Each beatitude must be present to some extent in the, the life of a believer for the other beatitudes to form the complete whole of what Jesus is describing. Uh, it's not possible to uh, possess some degree of uh, lowliness um, in spirit without also hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Uh, there, there is an interdependency that goes along with these. And then finally, each true beatitude behavior is produced by grace alone through the Holy Spirit. Nobody is by nature like what the beatitudes are describing. These, these are not just characteristics that some of us might naturally possess more than others. These beatitude behaviors don't come about by trying harder, but rather they come through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. The beatitudes are uh, called macarisms. Uh, which is kind of a difficult word to translate into English. Uh, in essence, they're describing being in a happy or fortunate situation. They're statements of wisdom uh, intended to communicate to others how they can also be in a, a happy and fortunate situation. 
It's important to understand what the, the purposes of the Beatitudes because the use of the word blessed by many translations of the Bible could be misunderstood to mean that the blessing is offered in exchange for the behavior as a transaction. That is not what a macarism is intended to communicate. The blessing accompanies the behavior. A better word might be to say that the Beatitudes are describing what it looks like to flourish within the kingdom of heaven, both now and into the future. They're not saying if you uh, were for perhaps to display this particular behavior, then God will bless you by giving you this. That, that isn't the transaction uh, that's being described. As Eugene Peterson says, scripture does not present us with a moral code and tell us live up to this, nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say think like this and you will live well. Rather, the biblical way is to tell a story and in the telling, invite. Live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in the God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. What's noteworthy here also is, is how Jesus is proposing a way of flourishing that is the opposite of what the world says flourishing looks like. We will see this with beatitude after beatitude. What Jesus is doing is he's establishing a Christian counterculture that eschews the wisdom of the world in favor of God's value system instead. To remind us of where we're at with the Beatitudes, our previous two included the following. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Keeping in mind the relationships between the Beatitudes... Uh, we need to understand what these are, are saying in order to fully understand the, the third beatitude we're going to look at this morning. We could summarize uh, the beatitudes thus far uh, by essentially acknowledging that from the first beatitude, we understand that poverty of spirit is the deepest form of repentance. From the second beatitude, we can learn that the man who lives in light of the realities of his sin and the sin that's present in the world around him cannot but mourn. Seeing your sin, seeing the way sin has impacted the world leads us to uh, a posture of mourning. Ultimately, repenting and mourning are necessary for us to be able to orient ourselves correctly relative to God. And the restoration that's produced in our relationship with God is the source of our flourishing. The beatitude this week is Matthew 5.5. We're going to be taking a look at blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's a very short passage of scripture to compose an entire sermon on. But there's a lot here that I think is valuable. I think maybe the most central question here that needs to be addressed is what does it mean to be meek? Meek is not a word that we use uh, commonly, at least I don't, uh, in, in my, my everyday language. Um, and so as a result... Uh, it's something that the, the meaning doesn't necessarily immediately connote with. So we can take a look at the original language. Uh, this is, I think, from, from Strong's Concordance. Uh, taking a look at meek as it shows up in the New Testament, the Greek word that generally accompanies meek, uh, as here in Matthew 5.5, 5, is praos. Uh, and according to Strong's, uh, it means something along the lines of mild and gentle humble, uh, and then it also has this interesting statement about exercising power and avoiding harshness. 
uh, that's a, a little bit confusing to, to try to wrap your head around, I think. Meek isn't just a New Testament word, it's also an Old Testament concept, and so uh, we'll see meek show up in the Hebrew as well. Uh, when meek shows up in Hebrew, it's generally some form of anav, uh, where anav means poor, afflicted, or humble. There's kind of a lot of different directions that this could be applied uh, based on just these simple definitions, however, and it's, uh, in my opinion, immediately difficult to understand uh, what it, the, the different definitions mean when they're saying being gentle uh, or being afflicted and how that could possibly produce flourishing. So I think that it's worth trying to examine this and try to come up with a better definition for, for what it means to be meek. Uh, I think that other uh, commentary authors uh, also discovered that it's difficult to define meek. Uh, as I, I looked at several different commentaries, uh, what I found is that uh, commentary authors seem to have an easier time describing not meek than meek. Uh, and so, for instance, uh, they'll describe how meekness clearly does not include things like laziness, uh, avoiding activity, just being a nice person, uh, essentially getting back to that idea again that, that this is not something that people are, are inherently in possession of, but it's a, a Holy Spirit characteristic. Uh, meekness clearly doesn't include weakness in personality or character. Oftentimes I think meekness as an idea is reduced down to this idea of being just timid and mousy and just going along with uh, whatever other people want. That's, that's not what the idea is. Also, meekness isn't self-pity. Sometimes I think that's the, the place that we get to when we try to exercise humility uh, to the, the greatest extent that we're possible uh, to do so. We, we sometimes arrive at this idea of, of self-pity and why doesn't everyone um, appreciate me. Um, that, that is the opposite of meekness. That is, uh, that is not supporting the idea of meekness because the focus is still on the self, as we're going to see a little bit later on. Commentary authors also point out what meekness is the opposite of. Not only what it's not, but you know, if you grasp these ideas, just do the, the, the reverse, and that's meekness. So some examples of what meekness is the opposite of include trusting one's own powers and abilities, trusting in one's organizations, trusting in one's institutions. Meekness is the opposite of self-assurance. It's the opposite of aggressiveness. Meekness is the opposite of arrogance or oppression. I think these definitions help, but uh, if you're like me, you might still not perhaps feel like you've got a really strong idea of exactly what is being addressed here. I think humility is uh, a closely associated word. Uh, it's a, a word that I think we generally have a little more experience with, uh, that we, we perhaps use a little more often, and certainly shows up uh, more, more regularly throughout the Bible. Um, and there is a lot in common between humility and meekness. I think the, the difference that you'll see, though, is that humility is more about an internal state. Humility is about uh, what you believe and think uh, and, and how you view yourself, whereas meekness, on the other hand, is the way that that humility governs our interactions with other people. And so grasping the idea of humility is valuable, but recognize that that's not necessarily the same thing as meekness. Uh, in order to actually display meekness, that humility has to manifest in the way that we interact with others. Maybe the best attempts to provide a definition for what it looks like to live with meekness, uh, that come from outside the Bible at least, come from the Welsh minister, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones says, 
Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. It is my attitude towards myself, and it is an expression of that in my relationship to others. One who is meek is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, In meekness, we no longer protect ourselves because we see there is nothing worth defending. We leave ourselves and our cause and our rights and everything with God, with a quietness in spirit and in mind and heart. Within the Bible, Psalm 37, which Jesus seems to be referencing with this beatitude, also offers some additional insight into meekness. In Psalm 37, 7 through 11, it says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Note from this passage, um, the, the comparison that seems to be uh, pretty clearly made here between those who wait for the Lord and the meek. I think that's a, a valuable idea to add to our understanding of what it means to be meek. The meek person waits for the Lord. While these descriptions are helpful, I hope you're already considering the four scenes I introduced a few minutes ago. I think meekness is perhaps something that we can learn best through examples. Abram, Moses, David, and Paul were just a few of the many examples of meekness that are displayed by followers of God in the Bible. As we think back to their actions, we see the following. With Abram, when Lot chose the best land for himself, Abram kept his word and traveled in the other direction, taking the land that looked like it was a, a worse land overall. From Abram, we can learn that meekness is not seeking the most favorable outcome for ourselves at another's expense. With Moses, when Moses' siblings used a jealous accusation to try to take some of Moses' authority for themselves, Moses, according to Numbers 12.3, was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Moses made no arguments on his own behalf in the confrontation. From Moses, we can learn that meekness is not retaliating when someone threatens our position or reputation. With David, rather than taking advantage of the opportunities that he saw in front of him to remove the obstacle to his own accession to the throne by killing Saul, David spared Saul's life both times that he had uh, an opportunity to kill him and even continued to serve him as faithfully as he could given their relationship. From David, we see that meekness is not exploiting an opportunity to gain what we feel we deserve. Finally, from Paul, uh, rather than defending himself and chastising the church that had treated him so badly in Corinth, Paul instead extends forgiveness to those who harmed him, and he begged the church to forgive and love the offenders as well. 
He encouraged the church to do this for the sake of avoiding divisions in the body of believers there. From Paul, we see that meekness is minimizing your own needs in favor of others. Rather than than see himself uh, justified, Paul was trying to look out for the good of the church and hoped that they would would come back together um, in in light, uh, despite the, uh, the situation that had developed there. Please note the strength that is present in each of these examples. These are not weak men in the Bible. Um, These are not men who are afraid to stand up uh, for what they believe to to be right and good. Meekness is not timidity. Instead, it's a conscious display of graciousness to another person. We're also missing one very important example that you might have already noted of meekness, and that would be Jesus, the Son of God, and he is as perfect in meekness as he is in all other things. We can see many different examples uh, of Jesus' actions exemplifying meekness as we look at the entire story of uh, his time on earth. But perhaps the best example, the the most clear definition of Jesus' meekness uh, is actually highlighted most clearly by Paul in Philippians 2, 3 through 8. In Philippians 2, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. From Jesus... And his example, we see that meekness is humbling ourselves as servants, sacrificing our attempts at control, and taking our cues from God. Hopefully with a little fuller idea of what meekness can look like now, let's consider the second half of the Beatitudes. What is this promised inheritance of the earth? Recall in the Sermon of the Mount this now and not yet theme of the kingdom of heaven. This inheritance that is described includes both a component that applies to life as we live it today and one that applies to the future after Christ's return. So we're going to look at those two ideas separately. What does it mean to inherit the earth today and what does it mean to uh, see this inheritance of the earth come to completion when when Christ returns? I'm going to start with uh, taking a look at the the idea of the, the future kingdom of heaven and this future inheritance that's promised to us. Just a question, is is this inheritance of the earth actually something valuable as we look to the future? Um, For example, not all inheritances are great. Uh, It's it's possible that you can inherit debt. Uh, It's possible that you can inherit a house uh, that is broken and needs a ton of work before it can even perhaps be be gotten rid of. Uh, It's possible that you can inherit tax burdens and things like that. Not necessarily every inheritance is good, but what we see here in the Beatitudes is this idea of flourishing, and this is a promise that is supposed to be good. So how is this promise of inheriting the earth a blessing? There are a few different theological perspectives that involve the future of the earth. The one I personally grew up under uh, was most closely aligned with what I'd call a scorched earth perspective. 
It was this idea that at the end of time, everything of which the physical world as we now know it uh, is consumed by fire. And then from that absence of the earth, God creates a new heaven and earth that are then intended for eternity. In more recent years, as I've read more and I've learned more about scripture on my own, I find I agree more with the other main perspective, one that relies on the idea of a renewed and a restored earth, one in which the world around us is returned to its good state that God originally observed at creation. There are a number of verses that support this idea, but I think maybe one of the most straightforward is in Romans 8, 19 through 21, where it says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hopes that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. As we think about flourishing with the future inheritance of the earth, does that sound more like an inheritance of brokenness to be consumed by fire, or an inheritance that will be restored alongside us to be as God intended it to be? I think that's worth reflecting on what our, our theology might be as, as we consider the future that God has promised. To be honest, though, I found it even more difficult as I considered what it looked like for a meek person to flourish in the now aspect of the kingdom of heaven. None of the examples we've looked at in Scripture seem to be occurring in the midst of flourishing. While they each do have positive ends, we see that Abram receives a promise from the Lord, Moses is defended directly by the Lord, David's eventually coronated king, and both Paul's ministry and the church in Corinth persist for many more years. We need to remember that this beatitude isn't a transaction. We're not to expect divine intervention in our favor if only we manage to display a sufficient level of meekness in our actions. There must be a truth about flourishing that inherently accompanies an attitude of meekness. This finally made sense to me as I considered one of our dogs, Scarlet. Uh, if you happen to remember one of the other times I've had an opportunity to speak here, I also brought up Scarlet. Uh, we, we do have two other wonderful dogs, Lily and Walker, and maybe I'll have something to say about them someday as well. But for now, it's just going to be Scarlet 2, Lily and Walker 0 when it comes to sermon examples. Scarlet, like our other pets, was a rescue. Before we took her home, she had been returned to the shelter twice by other families. She is a bossy dog, and she wants to be in control of everything and everyone around her at all times. When we first started walking Scarlet, she was very anxious and honestly just a behavioral mess. She'd whine, she'd run back and forth jerking at the leash, she'd trip us, uh, she'd get behind us and prod us to go faster, she'd dig her heels in and try to drag us along with her as she chased after something on the side of the road that caught her attention, or when she saw another dog that she wanted to go bully. It honestly got so bad that at one point I told my wife that I wasn't going to take Scarlet for walks anymore. I was done. But then I devoted one of my Christmas breaks to working on training with her, just the two of us, with a lot of calmness and patience and treats. It took a few days, but in one wonderful moment while we were walking together, one day, Scarlet's behavior completely changed. It was like she finally understood the dynamic between us and what it was that we were actually doing together when we went out on a walk. She recognized that I'm the one in control, that I will take care of making the decisions and keeping us safe. 
She began to walk calmly at my side. The leash was slack, her ears were forward and relaxed, and she would regularly glance over at me to see if I was keeping pace with her or potentially turning or changing directions. If I stopped and looked off in a direction, she'd stop and sit by me and look in that direction too. And she has continued to walk like this to this day. It's still hard for me to believe that she's the same dog who gave me so much trouble before. And it's not only me who's happier with our walks now. She loves being able to understand what I want her to do. And she's relaxed and she's happy the entire time we're walking. This isn't to say that she's not still a 70-pound uh, bundle of fury uh, who uh, could, could be very aggressive or energetic at the, the drop of a hat, but she figured out how to flourish on our walks, and it wasn't by trying to be in control. By recognizing her position as being on the dog end of the leash, by trusting in me to be the one that was in control and caring for her, by looking at me for her cues, she was able to stop worrying about needing to make things happen the way she wanted them to. It is incredibly frustrating to want the world to be a particular way and to strain and struggle to try to make it so when our abilities to make change happen are so limited. When she gave that up, when she embraced what I can only describe as a doggy form of meekness, she found a better walk. I believe this is the now inheritance that Jesus is describing to us. There is a better way of living, and we can flourish within it by humbling ourselves as servants, sacrificing our attempts at control, and taking our cues from God. As Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, a man who is truly meek is a man who is always satisfied. He is a man who is already content. If you are meek and truly Christian, you have already inherited the earth. So this is the promise we see in this beatitude. As followers of Christ, we can have a better life with a wonderful inheritance, both now and in the future, as we live with meekness. However, I don't know about you, but I'm not currently meek. At least not all the time. While I can talk to God about my sin and repent, and while I trust in his love and forgiveness, I usually stop viewing myself as lowly as soon as I look at another person. I see others' flaws, and I believe that mine are lesser. I see others' decisions, and I think I can make them better. I want power, and I want it as soon as possible so I can start controlling the world around me and making it more like I imagine it should be. I don't, want to want, I don't want to bother God and wait for cues from him when I already feel like I know what needs to be done. I'm not meek. I don't feel the flourishing that goes along with the better walk, but I so desperately want and need it. Now, I'm not alone in this inconsistency. Even Moses, described in the Bible as meeker than all the people who were on the face of the earth, was rejected from entering the promised land because of his failure to be meek when he struck the stone to produce water for the people of Israel in Meribah. He got frustrated with the people of Israel and he took control of the situation himself rather than listening to God's instructions. Sin in our lives ruins our ability to display perfect meekness.
The key to experiencing the kingdom of God is through relationship, not transaction. While understanding meekness can help me realize my own inadequacy, the solution is not simply to try to be more meek. Instead, my lack of meekness helps me to recognize that I have a long way to go until I can be more like Christ. When I see the life that he offers and I feel my lack of it, all I can do is give up more of my control to him and seek to know him more. I build my relationship with God the same way I build a relationship with anyone else. I give him my time, I tell him my thoughts, I listen to what he says to me, and I simply enjoy his presence. And as Jesus protects my place in his not yet kingdom, he can also teach me how to better flourish in his kingdom of now. As Jesus himself says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's remember the sacrifices that Christ made for us to secure our salvation and to give us an example of how to find life by taking communion together this morning. Please pass the trays down, uh, down your row. They should be near the center aisle um, so that everyone has an opportunity to participate if they wish to. Jesus encouraged his disciples to remember the sacrifice of his body through the action of breaking and taking bread. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you wish to do so as a follower of Christ and in remembrance of his sacrifice this morning, please eat the wafer now. Jesus also encouraged his disciples to remember the new covenant that resulted from his sacrifice, the one that allows us to no longer live as enemies of God, but instead as his beloved daughters and sons. Jesus continued uh, in Luke 22, 20, says, and, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. If you wish to do so as a follower of Christ and in remembrance of the new covenant he provided for us, please drink the juice now. Let me close us in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word and the meaning that it can have for us, even in short phrases. Lord, thank you for the opportunity uh, to enter into your kingdom because of the, the sacrifice that you've made. Um, I'm, I am not there myself. I am not meek, um, but you want me to be more that way, and you let me be a part of the kingdom in the meantime anyway. Lord, I just pray that you would help each of us to trust in you more, uh, to, to seek more after you, that we might experience the flourishing that you promise. We love you in Jesus' name.